My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. On our last episode, we discussed the importance of safe housing for those in recovery or leaving prison. But housing is far from the only challenge facing those who've just been released. This time, we'll look at prison release more broadly. What are the factors that lead to so many ex-prisoners re-offending? How does someone make a success of life after prison? And how much harder is it when addiction's involved? Jules and I will explore these questions and more with help from our guests from the series. Everyone you hear has come out and stayed out, if not always at their first attempt. So these perspectives on this topic are fascinating and truthful. If you've been released from prison and need some support, Forward might be able to help. Contact or reach out online chat service at forwardtrust.org.uk. Or if it's urgent, call the Samaritans on 116-123. Jules, just to start us off, we're talking about the main obstacles facing someone new released from prison, obviously housing. But I would imagine finance is a massive thing and also reconnecting with people you knew from before. Yeah, no, definitely. Finance probably being one of the biggest obstacles because mm-hmm. to have any kind of benefits you need to have a bank account <laughs> to have a bank account you need to have id and to have id you need to have money because you've got to purchase it so this that's the immediate start and it's really difficult for number one to get id because a lot of people don't have paperwork mm-hmm. um to be able to apply for it and then they can't open a bank account and if you can't have a bank account then you can't have universal credit paid into it and it spirals you just i just presume everyone's got a passport but they don't. No, no. Do you know, um, we recently helped a lovely gentleman get his passport and he's 55. It's his first ever passport, his Mm. first passport at 55 years of age. And it's taken him, obviously, a very long time to do it and so many different obstacles because, again, he didn't have his birth certificate and all of that stuff to be um, sent off. And I guess also, even if you do have those things in your early years, if you've gone through crisis and turmoil, and moving, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's hard enough if you are quite stable to go, where is my passport? But yeah. you know, to, to have moved six times or to be going from couch to couch, those things just disappear. Exactly. Actually, where is my passport? <laughs> <laughs> Jules, the other thing that I'm really interested in, having not been through the prison system, is on that day of release, those few days after that, the elation of leaving and also the, the joy of some of your friends and family seeing you. Obviously, that puts you in a position where you're vulnerable to drinking and, and taking drugs again. Or if, you're, if that's not a problem for you, you're just uh, lost about what your next step is. And it's got to be so difficult. I know you go to prison, life outside still carries on, but there's a pause in you as a person because whether you were struggling with addiction or you weren't and you go into prison, change happens mm-hmm. because you, you get to spend a lot of time with yourself in your cell and you might reflect on how it was for you and 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 also make some real sort of life decisions around what you want to change when you get out Mm. but not being able to maybe communicate that to those that are out because they'll still have this expectation that you'll come out the same way that you kind of went in so because ultimately the sentence is bloody boring and it's like almost you're holding your breath and waiting for release and on release whatever process you've been through everyone on the out is expecting you to pick up where you left off. Yeah, exactly. And if you've, if you've struggled with addiction and you come in, I mean, a lot of people that go through our programs and through the support of us within prison, 
we talk to them about how to communicate with their family about that first day of release. Because, I mean, I've I've been at the gate when people have been released and there's people waiting outside with Range Rovers, yeah. bottles of champagne. Big fat spliff. Big, big fat spliff. And it's this big celebration. And for me, anyway, when, when I... Not that my family, no way would they be waiting for me with Range Rovers or um, bottles of bubbly, but it was a very different situation. And I was really worried about coming out because I got released on the 16th of mm. December and it was my first, it would have been my first Christmas mm. ever, you know, like out, normal, sober. And I had to do a lot of work leading up to my release, talking to my family about addiction, about the 12 step program, the fact that I couldn't drink. They couldn't really understand that around, well, you weren't a drinker, mm-hmm. but just trying to explain that anything, you know, that I take that takes me away from me and, and it's about my program. And luckily they really understood that and there wasn't no alcohol in the house mm-hmm. when I when I came out. So it was really supportive, but not everybody has that same supportive environment. And of course, if you have been in an area where you've caused havoc, it might be that you have to go back to that area. Yeah, yeah. And Here you know, she is. And here she is. Here she She's is. Back. The danger attached to that as well, because you've got to go back to your home area because that's where your probation is. And if you've been involved in stuff before you've gone in, you know, you're constantly looking over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Who have I hurt? Who's going to... More obstacles that people have to face when they're released. I've got to say that working in prisons, I would say, as people's release comes up, I would say that the general consensus when you go, you're out in a week or you're out in 10 days, is anxiety. Anxiety. Not not elation. No, no. It's a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Claire O'Brien went to prison after a drink driving accident. She now supports people moving away from crime and into work through her social enterprise, New Leaf. Mary Claire talked us through her prison release experience and how she approaches the release of those she works with. Yeah, so obviously you've been ticking off on your little war calendar for this day to arrive and then it's finally there, so wake up, have your breakfast, um, get taken down to reception with all your belongings, um, have to wait in the holding cell as the new receptions are coming in, um, wait for your licence papers to be brought down. Uh, an officer would go through all your licence conditions, you know, no firearms, no fireworks. This is where you go in if you've got um, premises, you know, if you've got accommodation that you need to go to. Um, you would sign your licence conditions because obviously you're still classed as serving a sentence at that point unless you're you're released under different terms, but I was released halfway through my sentence. So yeah, had to kind of acknowledge that. There's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of high anxiety. I mean, one of the things, one of the least helpful things that I think happened on my day of release was one of the officers saying to me, don't worry, we'll see you again soon. You'll be back. And I was like, no, you won't see me again. I won't be back. And then all I can remember is um, my brother waiting for me outside the gates and that just that feeling of freedom, real real freedom. You know, I haven't got to go back here unless something catastrophic happens. Um, I've done it. I'm going home and I can stay at home. It was a beautiful feeling. And we went for re- breakfast and stuff. Yeah, it was an amazing day. And I love meeting people at the prison gate on their day of release. And I always give them a hug for freedom. <laughs> That's what I say. I'm like, <laughs> like Braveheart, hug for freedom, because it should be a celebration. Unfortunately, what I see is people, again, like we said earlier, full of anxiety and uncertainty. But still, let's celebrate it. Let's start on a good footing. It is a positive day. Um, we can hopefully help to make it 
more positive along the journey. So yeah, I love, I love release days. Corey Johnson is a music producer and entrepreneur who's been involved in criminal gangs and been to prison. His experience of release was also positive, but not in the way that the Ministry of Justice might have hoped. Every time I went to prison, I came out stronger and fitter, more disciplined. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that Sometimes shit. I think I need to go to prison so I can jump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just come out fit, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone goes like, "Oh, you ever come out of jail?" And oh, yeah, you gave take change your life around. I'm like, mate. Every time I came out of jail, I was thinking my clothes don't fit. I need new clothes. Get <laughs> I me. Mean, I want to keep keep up with the latest fashion. And I'm fucking feeling top of me off right now. So I'm gonna go around and bloody see you. Owes me some money. Gonna go and see him and take some money. <laughs> and like, you kind of come back. I think that was one of the, the funniest things when, like, as a kid, they, like, when we was naughty in Felton, they shipped out, like, the worst kids in the jail and they shipped us all out to Portland. At the time, we are like, oh, please, sir, please, please, was begging not to go to Portland because you're like, oh, no, you don't want to go because you heard all the horror stories. And some of it is actually true horror stories, I can't lie. But all they kind of really did here yeah, was, talk, like, some of the worst kids in London dump us in a jail where everyone else is speaking another language so you're happy just to see someone who knows Trafalgar Square or Red Bus. Ends and all of that doesn't matter anymore. You get me Peckham, Brixton, all that is irrelevant now. And then we're doing circuit training, making us super fit, teaching us first aid and all the trimmings and then put us back out. Like you just made generals. And it was so like literally most of the worst, like like my generation, most of the worst boys I know, we all was in Portland. Little army training for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So some things yeah, can, can kind of work and some things I don't think is always fully fought out, you know what I mean? Michael Balligan spent several years in prison before becoming a successful actor. He explained how bewildering the outside world can be when you've been away for so long. I went to jail in 2007, finished my sentence properly in 2013. So the, when I first went to jail was when the first iPhone came up. So I, I never had any experience of an iPhone. I didn't know what these things were. I, I just saw the advert and thought that looked sick, touchscreen, great. But bro, I got on the train for the first day when we've like, there's about four of us. So these guys have been going out, they're used to it. And I remember I got on the train, full train. Everyone's like that. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I was like, fuck, something's going on. There's going to be a, I thought it was a terrorist attack. <laughs> I swear to God, I thought there'd been a terrorist attack. I was like, fucking hell. It's like, bro, everyone's on their phone. What, bro, I need to check phone the brief. Is that my mind, right? No, 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 bro, that's, you can do. You like, can do that. Because I, I was like, why is it every, but it's like the whole like, iPads, like, I thought something had happened. And he's like, no, 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 Mike. It's just your phone can do a lot of things now, isn't it? It's like, oh, okay, cool. But that freaked me out. Tony Atwood is an ex-prisoner and recovering addict who now runs a housing charity. In previous episodes, he's explained how problems with his parents from a young age left him struggling with authority in later life. As a result, doing the necessary work with probation after his first releases wasn't a realistic prospect. I was unwilling to work with probation. You know, it was forced upon me. Anything forced upon me from a position of power, a position of authority, I'm not willing to engage with. And it has to be a free will of choice. If I want to work with you, I'll work with you. If you put it on me, my response is to push against it. And the way I controlled that in the end was to put myself in prison. I'd tell probation before I left, you may as well fill in a recall pack now, I'm not going to probation. And then it become... Yeah, preparing to go back to prison, you know, and survive in that environment the best way I could. And that was with drugs. And I'm not proud of that, but I'm just glad I had enough of it in the end, you know. 
Jules, we've been talking about a framework for people being released from prison, and you talked about your own experience about having done the work in prison and being able to discuss pre-release with people you loved about how it was going to be. To me, it doesn't feel like that's a very common uh, experience. To me, it feels like the lads generally are just thrown out. And um, the easiest thing to do at that point is to reoffend to get the money you need in order to move forward for the week. That just seems to be the norm. I think it's easier, actually, in some ways, right? In some ways, it's easier for men because there's a family environment. They've left behind a partner or a wife, girlfriend, the mother of the children, and they go back to the nest and they're looked after. But then they also now need to provide again because they've left the mum and they've left the children. and, And it's always a struggle for the ones that are left outside because they may not have that regular money coming in that the the man's been providing through whatever means it's been. So there's an even more pressure on them to get back on it, you know, and if there isn't work available, like a lot of work isn't available at the minute anyway, regardless of what your problems are, then it is easier, I guess, to reoffend because it's just like picking back up where you left off and you you don't need to go for an interview. You don't need to join the rat race. You know, it's a quick, it's a quick fix, isn't it? To a, a short term problem. And, and for women, I think a lot of the women that we meet and, and, and women that I know that have been released from prison, it's extremely difficult yeah. because a high proportion of them have been mothers before they've gone to yeah. prison. And as a result of going to prison, they've lost custody and access to children. And then they've lost their home because they were the, you know, they're the mum. That's um, huge. That's huge. Isn't it's it? so, it's, yeah, it is, especially even on the short sentences. And I know on our chat with Rory Stewart and his call to end short term prison sentences, which I think is fantastic because they don't serve no purpose. And again, if, if you've been taken away from your family environment, you immediately you lose your accommodation or your job, you lose access to your children, you go to prison, you get released, you're either in probation accommodation or you're in supported accommodation and you've got to start from scratch. There's no one there. You know, in some situations there are, you know, husbands and partners and, and mums and dads holding the reins, but, you know, nine times out of ten, there isn't that there. So you've got to start from scratch. And then I guess the goal is all driven towards the return of your kids. And how often does that get their kids back? I've seen a lot of um, women that have come out of prison that have done amazing work inside, have been released and have been reunited with their Mm. children. Um, I won't mention her name, but there's one amazing woman that we worked with um, and she was released and now all three, her three girls are all back with her and she's Mm. doing fantastic youth work and she's really managed to sort of turn her life around and she was a young offender as well and she went away for five years. So to see that and and you do see it, but not very often, especially where the addiction before prison has been so bad and neglect and custody of mm. the children has been taken away from them. They've got to work even harder. And again, I mean, I've been present in prison where I've had to support women that have had to go and do their last goodbyes with their children. Their children are being adopted mm. and the children get brought into the family centre within the prison and they have to go and basically say goodbye like that's it, you know. And it's heartbreaking to witness it, to see that. And you just know the turmoil that you just can't even imagine, you know, that that's it. They say goodbye. They're not going to, you know, there's no letterbox access or nothing. It's done. It's finished. (laughs) 
As you can imagine, leaving prison with an addiction problem makes success so much harder. Tony Atwood explains how the release experience itself triggered trauma related to his addiction. I remember the first few times of getting released, being cattled into the holding cell in the morning for, for release. And it could have been, you could have been there an hour, you could have been there five hours. And the anticipation, waiting, or hopping on my foot, pacing up and down, waiting to get out, that anticipation was the same feeling as waiting to score. So we talk about trauma. My body remembers. When I feel that anticipation, I'm sweating with anticipation. My body is used to going to score. I'm feeling that the minute I leave, it's the first thing I'm doing. And I've had every intention of not going back to prison. Like every time I left prison, I'm going straight, I'm not going back. But I didn't have the power to follow that through. I, I just went back to what, what I knew. This is why we really stress the importance for people to use their time in prison wisely and we will try and help them turn away from addiction. If someone comes out determined to keep using drugs, then the chances are they will probably be back. But if they're motivated to try a drug and crime-free life, then they have a chance, like thousands of Forward Trust graduates have. Like Tony, Jane Shea's addiction issues contributed to reoffending before she was able to turn things around for good. There's the last one and the one before that. That um, whereas the one before that, I I refused any help in prison. I wouldn't go to any of the NA meetings. I wouldn't go to any any of the drug services because I had this idea in my head that. I'm going to use and that's that's where I want to be. So what I did was I left. I didn't have anywhere to go. I went straight to housing. They housed me temporarily for a night in Holloway Road. Before I even went to the housing, I had to turn up at drug services, but I went and scored on the way there and rang someone and scored. And the next day, after they gave me this temporary housing, I, they put me in um, a hostel, a St. Mungo's, St. Mungo's hostel, that was eight, an eight-bed hostel that was supposed to be for women being released from prison clean but what happens is in that hostel is you get released clean but you don't stay clean there was eight of us living there there was dealers in there every day another girl who um who had come out from prison that i knew on the sentence was in there all of us were uh, some of us were on tags some of us had warrants out for our arrest and then eventually what happened was me and this girl vanessa we left there we went out to earn some money to get drugs both got arrested ended up back in holloway Speedo Mick is an inspirational fundraiser who revealed to us for the first time publicly that he spent time in prison as a result of his addiction. His story demonstrates how addiction, crime and prison can easily go hand in hand. Well, this is, this is going to be the first time, by the way, I've um, spoke about okay. me being to, going to prison. Okay. I haven't spoke about it. I haven't said anything about it on me, on my social media mm-hmm. or anything because, once again, because of the stigma, yeah. I think I'm going to get judged, you know what I mean? And yet my first experience was, was fines, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Where, uh, you know, I was getting... Fine after fine after fine after fine. Yeah, yeah, but the first time I went to prison for a fine, I think I got, like, you know, 14 days, something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is through my addiction. I was, I was addicted to alcohol and drugs. So I was, you know, com- committing, you know, petty crimes, you know what I mean? Stealing and stuff like that. Yeah, so then I'd get a fine. And I, obviously, I'm an, I'm an addict, so I'm not going to pay a fine. You know, so then, you know, they'd come around and they'd nick you, you know what I mean? Like, oh, mate, you should be absolutely gutted. You'd be like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? The fear. 
you know, that you were going to go away. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, away from be able to access any of the, uh, the drugs and stuff, you know what I mean? So then I got nicked for other, you know, petty crimes and stuff like that and, you know, thieving and trying to get the money to, you know. Um, I think nine months was the was the longest time, you know, I spent in, in, inside, really. Mick feels he wasn't given the necessary informed support he needed, relying instead on his well-meaning family. You know, I, I could have been um, offered more support, basically. Mm. I, I mean, I can't remember when it was, but that was a long time ago, you know, so I'm not even sure if there was any yeah. meetings going on yeah. in, in the prison system then. Yeah. You know, when, uh, so I just come out to my brother and a big spliff. Yeah. You know, so, so that's what you did David... that thing where you went in, pause button, came out, press play. play. That's yeah, where you were. yeah. So, we, you know, my me, me, me family turns up with a big six skin <laughs> trying to get me onto the weed they thought that that was the the solution to me problems was to just just smoking the weed instead of using the class a's you know what i mean and i can kind of see the logic in that no i can you I can, can yeah. i can see it <laughs> you, you know what i mean yeah anyway that was me uh, but what they could have done is you know direction you could they could give you some direction to where to go you know what i mean and there was none of that there was no leaflets or anything Jules, talking about release and still being addicted on on the inside. When you go to prison, obviously lots of drugs are available, but I'm hopefully not being too naive, but you can't buy a bottle of whiskey in prison and you can't necessarily buy Coke or whatever. So you, you take whatever's available. So you're talking about spice and drugs which are kind of more clandestine and harder to get on the outside or not used on the outside. So you, you, you come out a different addict, right? Is that is that true? Yeah, for some, I mean... Let's talk about prescription medication mm. as well, because okay. that is what you get if you go into prison and you might have been on heroin in the community, mm. you might have been given a methadone prescription on a, probably a high dose and you're living in the community and you come into prison. We then have a duty of care to continue to medicate you how you are medicated outside. Mm -hmm. So someone that was getting 80 mils of methadone will get 80 mils of methadone when they come into prison. Mm -hmm. And they will be maintained on that for however long they want to be maintained on that, especially if there are no programs to support them. Again, it comes down to Rory Stewart's point to end short sentences because if you come in, you're in for three months, you stay on the exact same script, you go back out just as addicted as you were when you come in, although you're stabilised and not using class A's, but you still go back out with a script and you have to then go back to your local drug and alcohol services, back to the pharmacy and literally pick up where you left off. I have met people that have gone into prison with no opiate addiction, no heroin, nothing like that. It's just been cannabis, a bit of alcohol, and they've tried opiates in prison mm -hmm. and they come out and they that's where they pick up their heroin yeah. addiction. And spice, it's the worst thing ever. I mean, there's people that have gone in that would never have touched anything like that on the outside and they're smoking that because it's the most easily available thing that there is. And is there a spice problem outside of prison? There is, yeah. I mean, it, they used to call it legal highs oh, and you yeah, could yeah. buy it. In, yeah, yeah, you could buy right. it in the shops. So it was a thing. And then it sort of swept through prisons and it's still sweeping prisons. I was in a, I was in a prison on Monday and they said their spike increase is so high that the people are being blue lighted out, which means their hearts have stopped. Mm -hmm like weekly people are dying and flatlining because of it they talk about spice like it's like a shadow mm. 
you can't catch it. You can only kind of see where it's been because mm. you can't really test for it. And it just, it's sweet. It's yeah. awful. It really is an awful drug. So coming out of prison when you're still adri- addicted and in the grip of addiction, even if you're not on any sort of medication, if there's no support for you and you've come into prison, like I had many times and I have a quick rapid detox because I wasn't on any methadone or anything like that. I wasn't manageable enough to get myself sorted in the community to do that. So I'd come in, I'd have a very quick rapid detox, which was as painful as anything, Mm -hmm. awful. And it lasted for weeks and you still felt the effects of the detox weeks later. Um, And that's basically cold turkey. It's awful. But... All of the addictions are still there and that's all. It consumes your thinking. When you're thinking about being released, you're already planning where you're going to score, what you're going to use, because they're normally short sentences that do, you know, that have that sort of, for me anyway, that was my impact. And it wasn't until I was in there for a longer period of time that someone was able to change my thinking and talk to me about the addiction and and do some treatment while I was in there. Jules, it seems to me, just from what you're saying, with um, addiction in prison on short-term sentences, it's literally like you've been denied something that you want rather than trying to remove the addiction. You're like just going, wait till I get out, wait till I get out, wait till I get out and I can get straight back to what I want. Whereas you're talking about doing the work so that you know you de- you know you know it's not good for you and you know that you want to stop that craving. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jane Shea's turnaround came when she finally accepted support and engaged with prison services before and after release. She credits the birth of her granddaughter for convincing her to do so. Then what happened was I met Dr. Gosh, I got involved in Drugstrat, and where I'd been in recovery before, all of a sudden I felt this feeling of like, that, that feeling that you spoke about, I can't do this anymore, but I don't know how to change it. Just previous to this, my daughter was pregnant and I love my daughter and I wanted to be there at the birth of my grandson. And we had made an arrangement and I was going to go to the hospital and she wanted her mum there. And what happened was I was kind of together. I was on a DRR. Um, I was doing a bit of shopping every time I got my gyro and then I was using. But as you know, we've using very quickly things spiral out of control. When she went into labor, that wasn't the case. And I remember clearly I was sitting in my room this morning. I've been up all night smoking crack. The crack pipe was on the side. There was still crack left. I got a phone call from my daughter. I'm in labor. Now I know I'm not going to the hospital. And I feel that feeling of my heart sinking because I know I'm not going. But what I do is I say, okay, I'll see you at the hospital. I lie because and I put the phone down and I pick the crack pipe up. And I love my daughter and I wanted to be there, but that's what I chose to do. And then what happened was I go to prison and while I'm in prison, I started engaging in all of these things. And I actually find out while I'm in prison that that same daughter, my daughter is pregnant again. And I don't know at this point how things are going to go, but I have put things in place. I engaged with Drugstrat. I engaged with Steps to Recovery. A woman called Louisa was coming into prison. Steps to Recovery was just opening. And so she was doing this grouply, one one weekly group. And I put these things in place. And at the very 
very last minute, what happened was I was going there on the Thursday. I go back to my cell one day and they said to me, you're leaving, it's Tuesday. Got my drug work, we run steps to recovery and I filled that gap and I went straight there. And, and like I said to you earlier, I did use once and then I went to Mandy's, but I continued on that journey. It wasn't it wasn't straightforward and I stayed clean all the way. But what happened was I stayed clean and I put things in place because I knew, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. And I knew that you can't leave prison and think, I'm just going to go and have one. You can't do it. It doesn't work like that. You've had your last one. And Tony explained how the rehab centre he went to after his last release made all the difference. Good experience was going to Yaldor, going straight from like not seeing a blade of grass for seven months to being plonked in a beautiful environment, aesthetically a beautiful place, the warmth, the love, the compassion. I was accepted. You know, it didn't matter what I'd done. It was like the arm was put around me and relationships and environment. The relationships were right. The environment was right. And I flourished. I was empowered to, you know, no one can do this for me. But if the conditions are right, I can grow. You know, if you provide water, a roof over your head, communications, even touch, you know, a hug. For Marie Claire, finding positive ways of channeling her natural urge to take risks has been key in keeping on the right path since her release. The first thing was I never wanted to go back to prison. So, you know, part of that is the commitment to, to going straight because actually I'm a risk taker and that is part of my personality. I mean, I was diagnosed as a hedonist when I was, I was on, I was unwrapped. Um, I think what, what I needed to do as part of my commitment to not going back to prison was find ways to channel that risk taking side of myself in a legal way that was less likely to hurt people. So for example, passing my motorbike test and, you know, riding motorbikes gives me a thrill and allows me to let off some of that or starting a business has risk at its core and I can take healthy risks and sometimes take unhealthy risks with that. So I have outlets for that risk taking now. I don't know if it was a commitment to going straight. It was more of an acknowledgement that there was changes that I needed to make in my behaviour because otherwise I was definitely at risk of going back to jail. So Jules, if you had to name three key ingredients for a successful prison release in an ideal world, what would they be? You need a roadmap laid out in front of someone, what we would call a care plan, a release plan. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what needs to be done pre-release? Have you got housing set up? Where are you going? Is your probation governing where you go? Do you need onward support on release like rehab? So what can we do to do that? A lot of that stuff happens, but in some cases it's broken down and it doesn't happen because some prisons don't necessarily have the setup to that and it's not all governed by one organisation. There's lots of different organisations doing different things and it's really key that they all talk to each other. So it's communication for all the different agencies in prison. I wonder what percentage have that that package, Jules, because I mean, I've told you this story before, but, you know, sitting outside Brixton prison waiting to go in, seeing a geezer literally walk out the wooden gates, the gate closed behind him, holding a plastic blue bag and going, looking left, looking right and going left. And I'm like, mate, that's it. I would think that that would be the case for maybe not a majority of people, but a, a, a large lot. percentage. A lot, a lot. And, and, and I would say that's probably the case if 
they are repeat offenders. Mm. If someone's just gone in for a sort of one-time offence and they've spent a bit of time in prison and they've people are there waiting for them and that, but it gets tiring, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Sure. You know, like families get frustrated and and then it just becomes like another prison sentence where oh, you, you know, you got to make your own way home and 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 actually people without families. We talk a lot about families on this, but there's a high proportion of people in prison that have got no family support or don't want nothing to do with their families. And I think those are the ones that have to fight even harder to um, make a success of their release. They've got to really go deep, dig really deep for all the courage and the strength and to be able to sort of trudge forward. But again, I think it's really important that services in prison get this stuff right for people. Because for some people, there's a one one chance and one chance only because if addiction takes hold, the rate of overdose when you're released from prison is so high because your tolerance level is so low and you come out and you think you can pick up where you left off and use the same amounts and people are overdosing and dying so frequently. It's scary. So Also, Jules, I mean, we were talking earlier on about prison reform. There's a mountain in front of you. But if you're naive like I am and you don't understand the politics of the prison services there is no mountain and it seems really clear to me that supplying the guys the women and the guys that are coming out of prison with proper support before they leave with proper opportunities before they leave gives you a chance of them not coming back and even in the most basic way the financial repercussions of them not coming back are, are money saved to the for the government exactly but again i mean like how long does someone need to be in prison to make sure all of that stuff gets put yeah, in place yeah. for them. Anything less than six months sentences, not enough time. you're doing three months of that. Yeah. It's just 12 weeks is not enough time. Prisons are overwhelmed with people. Mm. They're so packed tightly that movement is difficult because there are no bed spaces mm. left. And contracts are being squeezed. Money's being squeezed. Resources are being squeezed everywhere. So if you've got one caseworker with... 60, 70 people on a caseload. Yeah. How do you give quality to that? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. So I think the key ingredients are, first of all, government needs to sort their act out and ban mm-hmm. short sentences and think about community provisions for people. And if it's addiction related, then rehab options yeah. for people. And all the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julius. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.